Hebrews 11 says, now we know that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Over the last century, faith has been pushed inward, something much more private. So let's ask ourselves, how do we go public with things of faith, with our faith, with confidence? How can we speak about the things that matter most in a compelling way? Let's talk about that. From the Word of God, Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Hear God's Word this morning as you view it on the screens or see it in your Bibles. Mark 3, 1 to 6. Again, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life, or to kill. But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. May God bless us through this, his holy word. Let us pray. Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So this morning, by your word, shine your light that we may see clearly our next steps. In Jesus' name, amen. I saw this little quotation uh, a couple weeks ago. It said this. It said... um, There are some things that are better left unsaid. And those are the things that I just blurt right out. (laughs) All right, if you're laughing, you relate to that. And if you're not laughing, you're embarrassed because you relate to that too much. But, you know, there are other things that are really difficult to talk about. You know what those things are? The things that are most difficult to talk about? The things that we need to talk about the most the things that matter the most. They're very difficult to talk about. A few weeks ago, I I mentioned the Hamlin story, the the football player who uh, collapsed on the the field. And, you know, in in those minutes after that and in the week following, people were very expressive about their faith. People were very concerned. It really drew everybody out, drew their private assurance and hope and conviction out into public. And then when things started going back to normal, we just sort of pretended that never happened. We just kind of put that back in a little box. It's like, okay, that didn't happen. Everything's good. You know, we didn't really pause on national TV and, and pray. We didn't, really, uh, we didn't really have this sort of collective concern. Uh, we didn't really go public with our faith, right? 
That was, just a, that was just an aberration. But see, there are moments when we pull back the veil of all these illusions, of, of all the ways that we're entertaining ourselves to death, and then for a moment we see what really matters and what's really real and what's, what's really important to be about. And then we get uncomfortable. Or it gets a little weird, right? And we put it back in the box. Well, how do we, how do we talk about faith in a way that isn't awkward or weird? In fact, in a way that is very compelling. Well, here's, in each of these weeks, through these 16 weeks going through Mark, I'm going to give you this sermon in a sentence, and here it is. Faith, living faith, is compelling when it's more about the tools than the rules. So we're going to be looking at rules this morning. How, where, where, where do they fall in, in terms of growing our faith? When, 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 when faith is more about the tools than the rules. Oh, it's so compelling. It's the most natural thing in the world to come up to talk about. So let's, let's go through that. Faith itself is compelling. Faith itself is compelling. It's compelling because f- true faith really aims at the why, not the what. It aims at the foundation, not, not at the wallpaper, right? I mean, I, I, I've heard wallpapers coming back. Have y'all heard this? Please, no, no, just no. Faith is not about that embarrassing wallpaper in the lavatory that you forgot to change and then you had the guests over, right? You know, it, it's, it's about the foundation. And when faith is aimed well, when it's aimed at the why, and not just the what, oh, it's compelling. It's compelling. Look at verse Two, the, the, the question is, is he going to heal, right? Is he going to heal? They're watching. They're waiting for him to do something on the Sabbath, to cross the line, right, about the rules. They're waiting. They're watching. They want to they see him make a mistake. <coughs> and see, they're thinking of the Sabbath as just a what. And they've totally forgotten the why of the Sabbath, right? Totally forgotten it. They're thinking of it as something like, um, well, so, somewhere in my father's, my, my parents' house is a picture of me in lederhosen when I was really young. Later, lederhosen. Now, now, there's somebody in this congregation who shall remain nameless, but he might be the mayor of Thomasville who has a pair of lederhosen <laughs> that I thought about maybe wearing, uh, but I thought it might be a little bit too distracting. But, I mean, lederhosen is a cultural icon, right? Or, or think of another... Uh, uh, bit of culture from, from Denmark. You know, if, if you're 25 years old and not married in Denmark, you, uh, w- once a year, there's a, there's a cinnamon-throwing celebration. It's just sort of a wish you well to find your, your mate, right? And they throw cinnamon at you. Well, think of this one in India. In, in parts of India, if, if, you're, if you're having, if you're depressed or, or you're out of sorts or anxious, um, they have a ceremony where you try to crack open a coconut with your forehead, all right? These are, these are strange customs. And you know, sometimes we think of our faith and, and the, rules, the rules of our faith as like an embarrassing birthmark or something or, or some strange custom or, or heaven forbid, later hosen, right? That, see, they've reduced it. They've reduced the Sabbath, a day of rest. They're thinking of it as a what, and they've totally lost the why. 
They're thinking of it as wallpaper when it's really the foundation. I mean, look at what the Sabbath does. There's, there's, a, there's a physical benefit to keeping the Sabbath. All right, so when you, when you stop working, you know, and you say, all right, I'm going to trust that my efforts during six days is enough to provide for my family and my future. That there is a rhythm and a habit that you're getting into that, that physically manifests itself in you, that gives you a real rest, a real break. It's powerful. And you, you can lose that. And we are losing that. You can lose it in, in, in trying to keep up, in trying to keep up. You can lose what has been life-giving for millennia. But it also has a, a spiritual component to it. Not that the physical is disconnected from the spiritual, but, but just in terms of the category that you think of as, as spiritual or, or maybe emotional. It has an emotional component to it in some ways. And that is to, to deal with the silence or the quiet and your inner critic. You've got one of these, right? An inner critic that's constantly accusing you that you're not doing enough. You feel guilty. You feel anxious. Because somehow... There, there's something in our wiring, our brokenness, that's saying you're never going to do enough, you're never going to be enough. But when you pause, you have to deal with that inner critic through confession, through prayer, through scripture, through just turning again and acknowledging who do you belong to. And so this, these disciplines, this discipline of just taking a break, it reorients us to the why, the why of that rule. Not just the what, not just, well, this is just how we do it. We've always done it this way, right? We've, always, we've just always done it. It's just a tradition, right? No, there's something behind it. Here's, here's what Truett Cathy, who the founder of Chick-fil-A, said. Our decision to close on Sunday, I know sometimes it annoys me too when I'm driving down the road, right? <laughs> our, de- our decision to close on Sunday was was our way of honoring God and of directing our attention to things that mattered more than our business. Gosh, one of the most successful corporations in America. There, there's something that matters more than his business? You bet there is. And you know what? It comes out in their business. It's powerful. Margin. Vacations. Isn't it amazing? I mean, I, I can go away for just a couple of days, and all of a sudden I start getting curious about things again. I start noticing things again. I start, I start feeling energy. I fr- start feeling creative again. All of a sudden that problem that I couldn't solve, it's just like, boom, oh, yeah, okay, why didn't I think of that before? Well, because I was just running, running, running. And then you take a break. You ever notice that? Now, did you see what I just did there? I'm talking about the Sabbath without talking about the Sabbath. I'm talking about the benefit of it. I'm talking about how it affects me. And you know it affects you the same way. You've had that same experience where it's like, gosh, I've just taken a couple days and now, boy, I just feel ready to go again. I heard some people, overheard some people uh, talking about this just a couple days ago, talking about how they needed a break from their break, that, that their, their vacation wasn't a vacation. They, their work just kept creeping in and creeping in and seeping in. And they weren't really taking a break. And then, so here is a way, you, you can talk about the fourth commandment, keep the Sabbath day. That's the fourth commandment in ways that are so compelling. And then there you are 
creating common ground, building a bridge to somebody. And it's like, well, why do you, do you really take a full break? Yeah, I take a break. Why do you do that? Well, I just need that. And, and then you go in, and then, then you take it. You, you can take it anywhere from there. And you got their attention. You see, we're talking about the fourth commandment and how you can talk about it. You can be public with your faith in a way that really th- seeks the goodness and the benefit and the welfare of the person you're talking to. Not just about the rules. Not just about the wallpaper, but the foundation. You see, faith itself is compelling. The content of the faith, the habits of the faith, the directives and guidelines of the faith are compelling in and of themselves because they're about the why. They aim at the why of human life, not just the what. And so that's our first step. But the second step is that the Sabbath itself is not just a rule. It's a tool. We've already, you've already started to see how it's a tool, right? Not just a rule. The Sabbath itself is a tool. And our faith is compelling when we think of it that way. Not just as a rule, but as a tool for the abundant life, a fullness of life. Not just what's, what the limitations are, but why the limitations are there. They're there for the abundant life. It's a tool to build life up, not to limit life. And when we think of our faith that way, as a tool, not a rule, you begin to see how compelling it really is. Verse 4 Jesus is asking, engaging the Pharisees, the keepers of the law. He's engaging them with a question that would make them go back to the law code, to the halakha, the commentary of the day about the law code. And so he's framing this. One of the commentators said, you know, he's framing this question purposefully this way in order to engage the You see what they say. They, they, they were silent. What, what's that implying? Well, he's asked a question expecting them to weigh in about this. Is it, let's go back to it. He says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Well, you you could on the Sabbath save an animal, right? And so here's somebody with a a problem with his hand, and, um, and they have all kinds of legal tradition and commentary on top of the law that restricts and restricts and restricts. Why? Well, it puts them in charge for one thing. But it also minimizes things down. It just says, well, just pull this lever, push that button, kind of faith. This is what you're supposed to do. This is just how we do it. And they've forgotten. Again, they've forgotten the forest for the trees. They've forgotten the purpose of the law. And it's really a tool to build life up, not to limit life. But the limits of the law, the restrictions of the law are directional. They take us in the direction of higher up and deeper in. They take us in the direction of abundant life. And so, so, so look at this. He's asking him this question. He's turning it around. What's a good, I mean, it, <laughs> he's saying it in a way that kind of prompts them to think about what does the law code say, but he's also doing something else. Just use your common sense, people. That's what he's saying. I mean, he's turning it around and he's saying, what is the Sabbath for? What's it for? It's for life and life abundant. He's calling them back to the purpose of the law, that it's to form our habits in a way that forms us for life. How are your habits? What are your norms? Are they forming you for the abundant life? 
think of the norms that we get used to in our household. I mentioned our lavatory a minute ago. You know, I've got a lavatory but, you know, it, on our first floor of our house, and there's a sliding pocket door, and um, usually that lock, lock, lock is broken, right? And so every time we're thinking about having some folks over, like maybe a new member's class or something like that, group coming over, my wife will tell me, that door is broken, right? And so I, I have a temporary fix, you know, and, and my norm is just, you know, I just grab the top of that pocket door and I just kind of slide it, you know, I, I know how to grab it, but, but, but that's not very hospitable because I, I don't want to put a sign that says, just grab the top of the door and get it shut. It'll be fine. Nobody's going to come in. Relax. I mean, I was thinking about putting a sign on that, like that last new member's class. How, how hospitable is that? Just grab the door. Relax, people. You know, nobody's going to come in. Well, uh, this past new member's class, right before that, uh, New hardware showed up on the countertop. <laughs> just new hardware for that door, you know, just sitting right there. I, I took the hint, right? I fixed So you get into these norms, though, that aren't good. They're not normal. This is not a good normal, right? I mean, that every time you, you want to have a guest over, you've got to figure out how to fix the door to the lavatory. That's a trivial example. Let's talk about a more serious one. What are the norms in your household and the way that you speak to each other? Do you let each other finish your sentences? Or do you interrupt before the sentence has a period at the end of it, right? Remember Victor Borgnine? Yeah, that's how he talked about a period, right? People need to be able to put a period at the end of their sentence before you start talking. What's your norm? Have you had people come over, and it's not about the lavatory, but now you're so used to interrupting somebody, you're so used to being rude and, and, and jumping in emotionally uh, when somebody is saying something you disagree with that you're very disagreeable, you just jump right in, and that's your norm. You've sort of habituated, right? You've formed around this, this norm that's not a good norm, and now you've got people there, and oh, you kind of have to catch yourself because you've instinctively become rude to the people around you. Right? I'm not accusing you. I know none of you would do this, right? I mean, uh, we, none of us would do such, such a thing. But Y'all, you've got to be lighthearted about this stuff. When you're talking about stuff, when you're trying to be honest with yourself, when you're dealing with you, you know, you've got to be honest and you have to have a sense of humor about it, right? You have to say, yeah, that's me. Okay, yeah, that's me. You got me. Yeah, sometimes I have some habits that aren't good in my mind. You know, I remember when I, when I first was, uh, was ordained and people would come and think that I knew something about marriage. I'd been m- married probably uh, three and a half months and maybe a few hours. And people would come to me and say, oh, you're the expert. So uh, we're going to sit down and talk to you because you do premarital counseling. So you're going to talk to us about the fact that we never actually put our marriage together for the last 20 years, right? Okay, yeah, I'll do my best. Uh, you know, it's kind of... And, and, but I remember... You know, you know, th- th- there are some obvious things going on here. That people are actually, they're, what they're looking for from the law, what they're looking for from the rules, they're looking backwards to say, I just want somebody to tell me I'm right and the other person was wrong, right? And they get into the he said, she said, and they want, they want you to know the particulars of all their story. And I just, I'm like, no, I, I don't need to know the particulars of your story. They're, the, the universe is a has a moral blueprint to it and and if you're not understanding the principles of it then you're going to be violating violating the principles of it and you're probably you you could probably sit down and with a couple and figure out where those things are happening by telling by them telling you the story 
And then rather than refereeing the past, to be able to stay, draw them back and say, look, there are ways that, that we're to be formed according to Scripture so that you don't go into the future continuing to do what you've done in the past. And we can sit here and try to figure out who said what and what went wrong and how the story was really more in your favor and how you've been doing more than she has or she's been doing more than you have. Or you can say, what am I doing wrong? How am I not lined up? How am I formed or misshapen? And then you begin to see, see what I'm talking about. I'm talking about how you can engage with people along lines of faith that are so life-giving and so practical. And you draw them back and you say, there are ways that Scripture helps us form well, to relate well, not to be limited, but to embrace the limits that lead to the abundant life, you see, the abundant life. Habits make us after we make them, right? heard me say that before, that we make our habits, and then our habits make us. Well, this is what Jesus is surfacing. Is it lawful to do good or to withhold it? How do we want to be formed? What, he, he's saying to the Pharisees, how, seriously, people, how do you want to be formed? How do you want this law to form us? Do you want it to form us around moving towards each other with initiative, loving initiative to build people up? Or do you just want to think of it on the minimal scale that this, we just check that box and we're okay? He's saying, what do you want for your life? What do you want for your community? See, it's compelling to talk about your faith when you think of it more in terms of the tools, not so much the rules. But finally this, and this, this, is, this is the part that I think begins to really press in on our day and our age. And that is that, that faith and its rules, it's not about giving power to the few, it, it, but, but greater life and flourishing to all, believers and unbelievers alike. That, you know, just as Jesus said, we're to be salt and light. That, that the faith and the rules of the faith, the guidelines and the direction of the faith, the light on our path is for the benefit of people who don't know Jesus yet. The benefit of people who don't come to First Presbyterian Church. Benefit of who are not walking with him. In other words, we need to begin to think if we're going to have a compelling faith and be able to engage outwardly in public in our faith, be public in our faith, we need to understand how the law loves. How the law loves. That sometimes drawing the line is such a loving thing to do for somebody. But we need to know how it loves because he, here's, here's the deal. Uh, it, history repeats itself again and again. In verse 6, you see how the Pharisees went out and they conspired with the Herodians. What's going on there? This is the most religious people of the day engaging with the most atheistic people of the day, the most secular people of the day. These are people who, who were uh, loyal to Herod in such a way that made him an idol in place of God. They were just all about power, and so were the Pharisees. And when they got together, they, they, they were getting together around a common enemy. 
right? It, it'd be a little bit like this. It'd be a little bit like the, the East, and Eastern Orthodox priests in Russia getting together with the KGB to shut down uh, the um, Ukrainian refu- refugee camp that Harry T. just mes- mentioned a, a few minutes ago. Why would they do that? Because it's commentary on the fact that they are all about human power and not about the flourishing of human beings around them. And so this is what's going on here. Earlier, now I'm going to pull together several threads and we're going to bring this thing home. Jeremiah 29, Tyler read to you. Uh, Jeremiah 29, it says, part of it says this, verse 7 says this, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. In Babylon, right? Among all those heathen, right? All those people far from God, I'm supposed to pray for their welfare? I'm supposed to be concerned about them? Is that how I'm supposed to be postured in this day and age? Seek the welfare of the city? You see, here's what I'm getting at. Here's what I'm getting at. For the, the last, for, for, for most of my lifetime, Christian faith has been formed too much by the culture war, in the culture war, for the culture war. We've been formed in the culture war. In other words, we've been formed in such a way to look at the content of faith in some ways as ammo for our gospel guns. That the people who aren't doing it the way we think that should be done, that we are going to stand up in such a way that blasts them so that we win and they lose. Is it possible that Jesus could be saying, I am equipping you for the benefit, not just of the church, but of the city? Is it possible that our role as First Presbyterian Church right here on this downtown block, right in the middle of all these folks, these tens of thousands of people around us, that we are here for the benefit of Thomasville, Georgia? You bet it is. We've been given the law to help people understand how that law loves. Not just how there's a good team and a bad team. Not just to say there's a There's a red side and a blue side. Not just to say that through power we're going to maintain the the culture that we're losing. No, to say, look, there's a kingdom that is coming. And we are citizens first of that kingdom. And we know how to speak in such a way that wins people to that kingdom. That looks past the day and age and the election cycle and the he said, she said and the cable news. That we're formed around something bigger and better than the sides of power. You see, the Sabbath is all about peace. And the Pharisees knew it. They knew that one of the most common expressions, ancient expressions, was to say, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. May your Sabbath be fulfilling. May your Sabbath bring you hope and wholeness and healing. It's about the wholeness of human life, you see? And so our faith is compelling when we understand what we're for, when we have a vision that's bigger than just winning a side or just the church continuing to have a certain kind of place and stature in the culture. 
You see, we have what secularism has proved not to be able to accomplish, and that is create community. We have what, what secularism has, has proved to, to, to fail at, and that is to be able to give people a vision for life that's bigger than just their, their, their individual desires. We keep trying, in, when I say we, in our country, we keep trying to give people everything they want, every individual, everything they want, and we're going to keep slicing those individual identities up into the smaller and smaller bits. And we keep trying to, to give them everything they want. And meanwhile, meanwhile, we've been given a word that brings people together, that unites. We've been given a word that helps us form around something that's bigger than just ourselves. We've been given a word that, that inherently, inherently is forming us in such a way that we seek the shalom, the wholeness and healing of the city, and not just ourselves, not just our church. Here's how T.A.E. Lawrence puts it. He says, all men dream, but not equally. Those who dream by night in the dusty recesses of their minds awake to the day to find it was all vanity. But the dreamers of the day are dangerous men, for they, for the many act out of their dreams with open eyes to make it possible. See, this is why Jesus was a threat. This is why we're following him, because our faith is compelling. When it's not power to the few, even if it's us, but it's more about the tools, not the rules, to build people up. Let's pray together. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, how we thank you for the powerful word of influence, a light on our path that gives us a next step, not only in our homes to form around habits that build one another up, but for our church to be salt and light in our age that cannot do anything but seek its own individual desires. Lord, shape us for our call into Babylon. In Jesus' name, amen.